You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Now we all know that Sportiva makes the best climbing shoes this side of the Parthenon. But it turns out that even the most dedicated dirtbags have to spend an ungodly amount of time on the flats among the sad, lost, lowland civilians. And that's where Sportiva's approach shoes come in. Legends like the Boulder X can comfortably scramble you up slabs, boulders, easy pitches until the big guns come out. And for when you're not actually in the mountains, well, as you peruse the hemp milk selection at the whole paycheck, nothing says I've climbed El Cap, like a brightly colored pair of TX3s that are relentlessly scuffing the floor. Bellied up to the bar for that post-near-death experience beer, let them know those gobies didn't come from labor with a pair of impossibly lightweight TX2s. After all, isn't the day-to-day drudgery just a protracted scramble to the next climb? Whether you're actually at the cliff or just standing up in your best friend's wedding, you better be ready in a pair of multi-sport approach shoes from Sportiva. Are you stuck in the partner zone where that person you climb with is blithely unaware of your electric longing that's telegraphing through that stiff gym rope? Does she think of you as just another dude she schools in the bouldering cave? Does he tell his friends you're just like one of the guys? Well, break out of the partner zone and let that person know that your rock is in a hard place with a special gift from PeterWGilroy.com. Because if you thought making sure her chalk bag was always full or buying him a set of cams for his half birthday would bring out the passion, you're wrong. Do it the right way and go to PeterWGilroy.com for rock-inspired jewelry and accessories that say, to me, you're more than just a solid belay, baby. And of course, remember to enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is about 11 o'clock a.m. on the 24th of April, 2018. Yes, we're recording this in the morning. What a strange twist. This is what my day voice sounds like. Is it as bassy as my late night jazz, jazz voice? I don't think so. It's more in my nose. Can you hear that? I don't know why that is. Maybe it's caffeine. Anyway, this is episode 149 of the Normacast, a conversation with alpinist, writer, general creator, gym owner, guide, what else? Happy-go-lucky guy, Freddie Wilkinson. Got this one when I was on my tour up in the Northeast. Got some requests over the years for having Freddie on. Finally got it done. Sat in his mini house, the Shabin, and uh, had a nice long talk with Freddie. That's coming up. 
But I've been meaning to give a shout out to my friends at the Climbing Zine, Luke Mihal et al. The Climbing Zine, they have a new issue out this spring. I think it's volume 12 of the Climbing Zine. And uh, in there, there's a bunch of good stuff, including a tribute from our friend Andrew Bisharat uh, to Hayden Kennedy. So go ahead and check that out. Um, you can get a subscription over at climbingzine.com for like 20 bucks. I think you can get two for 30. Send one to a friend. Anyway, support those guys. They are independent climbing media. We love that. They're even probably more independent than the Normacast. Hopefully, they're making more money than the Normacast, though. But yeah, Luke's making it happen. That's his business. That's his job. He's a writer and does the climbing scene and a bunch of other stuff. So good on you, Luke. Keeping the dream alive. So help him out. Head over there. Check out the climbing zine. Maybe get a t-shirt, dirtbag state of mind t-shirt. These kind of endeavors don't exist without, without your patronage. Patronage? Patronage. Do we still use that word? Is there matronage out there? Anyway, see how sensitive I am at the Enormacast? Matronage. Let's call it matronage from now on. Or is matronage patronizing? Man. So complicated. What else? What else? What else? Just had the Five Point Film Festival here in Carbondale. It's kind of why I'm running late. Big weekend. I actually was not involved officially other than I did a live interview, which I think I'll put out next um, with a couple special guests. And I brought the uh, I brought the the, the the mobile studio to the van rally, and uh, frankly, I thought people would be more impressed than they were. Um, yeah, I thought there'd be, you know, some sort of blaring of trumpets and people gathering around and cheering, but uh, that's not exactly what happened. We just stood around on a semi cloudy day and drank some beers. People walking up to the door and peeking in seemed a little freaked out. Actually, like I don't know what they thought they'd see in there. But, uh, yeah, no accounting for taste, I suppose. One last thing before we talk about Freddie a little bit and get to the interview is we have stickers. The Royal We has stickers. So send me an address and I will send you stickers free of charge. Just do it. But uh, if you do email me at chris at enormacast.com, please print your address exactly how it should appear on the envelope all the commas and the capitalization and your name on it. Don't make me look back to your email address to fi- figure out what your name is. Sometimes it's not even on there. So yeah, get it right. Makes it easy for me to copy and paste. That's what we like to do. Seamlessness over here. The internless Normacast needs seamlessness. I have new stickers. Some think they're a little ugly, but I made them that way on purpose. I actually kind of researched stickers, looked around at these vans and trucks and things that have tons and tons of outdoor stickers on them. And I said to myself, what color is not represented there? What will stick out like a sore thumb? So that's it. I got new stickers that look like sore thumbs. And I still have the uh, continuous style ones too. So send your address and you'll get stickers. Kind of hopped up here at 1130 in the morning, aren't I? Okay, let's move on to Freddie Wilkinson in the interview. Not actually a lot to preview with Freddie. Kind of a journeyman climber, has made his way professionally in climbing through being a creator, writing books, a little bit of sponsorship, now a gym owner, and uh, just you know working it to make all sorts of things happen in climbing professionally, a little bit of guiding as well. We talk about that, how he's kind of pieced it together over the years just through his stoke and his psych about climbing, but also a very accomplished alpinist and 
I think his main feature is his stoke. He's just a guy that uh, you want to have on an expedition to keep things going, keep the morale high, keep it light when it needs to be light. And also a great representative for you Northeasterners. Yes, I'm still plugging away at these Northeastern interviews that I got when I was up there. So you're welcome. You folks hunkered down in that dark, wet spring up there. I'm just making assumptions. I don't actually know that. But anyway, this one's for you and for everybody. An interview with Freddie Wilkinson. We're in the Shabin. Is that what this thing's called? Yep. Why is this? What, what's the deal with that? Well, it started off as a shed, okay. and then we realized we were going to have to live in here, so we upgraded it to a cabin. Okay. But our friends wouldn't let us get away with it, right. so it became the Shabin. Yes, and we're like deep in the White Mountains here. Yeah, we're on the southeastern edge of the White Mountains, um, central New Hampshire, right sort of where the lakes meet the mountains, and it's a beautiful place to live. Yeah, it's awesome. I drove up the road and kind of crested a hill, and, you know, the view is, is you know, incredible, and you guys cleared the land to have a little bit of a view and, and a space to build the new house, which is up the hill now, but yeah. this is a sweet space to do a podcast, man. It's totally awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let me, tell, tell me a little bit about this artifact again uh, that we're sitting under oh yeah that's a piece of the bridwell hut from um the torre valley in patagonia that uh the hut was taken down in 2007 and um i happened to be there and rummaged through some of the wreckage and found that and that has a bunch of carvings on it and japanese characters and uh, italian uh, characters so I like to think that decades of angsty climbers have kind of, you know, put their their uh, mojo and energy into that board, and that's kind of the spirit that blesses uh, this shabin. Did you have any problems getting it through customs? No, I, I like did one of those big saran wrap machines and so i had it lashed to the outside of a duffel bag and saran wrapped it up and walked it right through nice yeah Yeah. i don't know why but it's you know anytime you have anything weird and you get like some you know overzealous dude and it can just be a problem Uh, it seems like whenever you're like pushing the boundaries of what you're supposed to bring back oh yeah yeah so it's good (laughs) anyway but yeah it's it's super cool so i wanted to also open though is is uh when i showed up um you know we introduced ourselves but it turns out that i actually sort of met you um i think it was probably in 2008 yeah would you have been in the valley still then i was yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so anyway i'm gonna set my scene um is that so i mean i was staying in the in the sar site because of uh Brandon Latham, who was still on SAR then, he wasn't hadn't become the man, mm-hmm. the gun-toting man that he is now in Yosemite. A good man. Yeah, good man. I lo- love the guy. Um, he's gone through the ranks, and he's is he's head climbing ranger. Is that right, or is he an is he a I think LO, so. Uh, or uh, LE guy. I am. I'm not sure. I think yeah, anyway. he is LE. Yeah, you're right. But, uh, right. Uh, yeah, it's always good to to have. Friends on that side of the law. (laughs) Somebody that understands. But anyway, he had me staying there. And I was just kind of like, you know, doing the thing where I was sleeping up behind his tent. And hadn't really been introduced to everybody in the SAR site, you know. So I was just one of those guys that was hanging around. And uh, big party one night, raging fire, the typical thing in the in the, in the SAR yeah. site. And you're, uh, like, across the fire, on fire, like, just 
you know, going off. <laughs> and I was like, who is this kid? Like, just, and, and so I'm also watching this other, like, large muscle-bound SAR guy who I went on to meet, Greg Lunowski, just get more and more pissed off at you <laughs> as you're like fully just going for it, drinking hard, needling, getting on his, getting in his grill, you know. Just oh, yeah. Good old whatever, you know, again, yeah. I'm observing this as a, as not knowing either one of you guys and yeah. I'm assuming, okay, you know, they're probably friends and, and then he gets so pissed at something you were saying is that and I have this wonderful image in my brain. He gets up and everybody's sitting on those big stumps, you know, like yep. cut, yep. cut, and he picks one up. Yep. Like, I mean, this thing had to, you know, I don't know how much it weighed, like full on above his head and like, and you're like cowering. <laughs> yeah. And he throws it and he just diverts it and like over to the other side of the thing. And, and again, as a as somebody who's like, Okay, I'm pretty sure he's not going to crush this kid, but maybe he's that pissed off. Yeah. Because, you know, he's, he's got a, a visage that doesn't reveal that much about him. <laughs> anyway, so that was my, I was like, I didn't even really know who you were until later. And then I connected, you know, I think um, seeing your, your books or just maybe reading about stuff that you climb. I'm like, that was that kid <laughs> who was like almost killed by that other dude in, in the SAR site. And uh, it's no wonder you don't remember that we were uh, sitting across the fire together. Because I don't know if I ever even introduced myself yeah. that night. So just watched it all go down. So Well, thanks, Chris. That's, yeah. a, that's a good one. Um, I didn't intervene, though. I apologize. <laughs> I know. I didn't, I didn't leap in front of the giant log to try that's to That's okay. You. I wouldn't hold it against my friend. <laughs> if I got crushed by a lumberjack and none of them did anything to defend me. Yeah. Uh, no, like uh, pushing people's buttons has always been this thing I have a little bit of a talent for. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most of the time it's it's all among friends and just in service of a good laugh. But right. sometimes it, you know, goes too far for sure. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad I survived that. So let, let's start with how you, yeah. you ended up in the SAR side. And were you actually on search and rescue then or were you an interloper like me? No, nope, I was an interloper. Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, 2008 was a good trip to the valley as I remember. Um, I was there on the site primarily through my buddy Mad Dog. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's different Mad Dogs out there. So this is the uh, New Hampshire Mad Dog who served on the SAR site and now is up in Alaska. Yep, Dana Drummond. Not the Mad Dog I met on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan who is also a a great Mad Dog. Um, (laughs) But anyhow... um, Mad it's do- a good life when you can cite multiple mad dogs. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you're getting around. <laughs> I feel like it's a prerequisite that if you're going to be a mad dog, you have to, like, give yourself that nickname. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a self-given, you know, title. Anyway, uh, Dana was a buddy from New Hampshire who I met around the time we graduated from college, 2005, 2004, and my main climbing partner, he had gone out there to the SAR site, and he was always definitely like a step above me in terms of rock climbing ability, you know? He was that partner that we were pretty well matched, but like, you know, he'd on-site the 12A, and I'd like take on it once, and you know, it was that kind of dynamic, and he went out to the SAR site and was totally kicking ass, and 
did the the first thing he did was the half dome nose link up and he went on to free half dome and free the free rider and i was out there and i really wanted to do the half dome nose link up because that's what mad dog had done and uh, me and Greg, who was probably that muscle-bound lumberjack who almost crushed oh, me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> we actually uh, managed to do it at the end of that 2008 trip, like in like July 2nd. So um, that was awesome. That's what I was doing there. Mm-hmm. So let's go back a little further. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you're yeah. here in New Hampshire. Yeah. Grew up, you're, so your homeboy, where we're at now, or was it so, somewhere else in New Hampshire? Where I grew up? Yeah. I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, okay. Um, down in the flatlands. Okay. Which, you know, all of New England is kind of like California. So um, I, you know, was about four and a half, five hours from here in pretty vanilla suburbs, little town called Durham that's halfway between Hartford and New Haven. And my dad was like the town doctor and you know emceed for the library fundraiser and so it was a very like you know that kind of a childhood um and i but i sucked at team sports Mm -hmm. and i got cut from the hockey team in fifth grade and that was kind of the end of my career in organized athletics and what i really liked doing was spending time outside at first, just hiking and exploring around the sort of the craggy hills of where I grew up. And uh, one thing led to another, and I decided I really wanted to try climbing. Um, for seventh grade, my for a Christmas present, my parents hired a guide from Eastern Mountain Sports. And when we were up here on a ski weekend, we climbed Mount Washington in winter. And that was the first time I had crampons on my feet and, you know, used an ice axe. And it's pretty much just a long, cold hike. It's not mm-hmm. like you're t- it's technical and you're belaying, but that gave me the first taste of mountain climbing. And so had you like been on a, I mean, did you go straight to that or had you been on a rope as a rock climber at all or anything like that? A little bit. Simultaneously okay. to that, oh, okay. um, Prime Climb opened in Wallingford, Connecticut, okay. which was, you know, first generation climbing gym. Sure. I mean, you know, plywood panels, Mm -hmm. you know, awkwardly concreted together. And I was there like the fall they opened and uh, took the belay class and would pretty much convince my parents to drop me off there, Mm -hmm. you know, on weekends and, you know, one school night a week maybe. And so I was kind of like first generation gym kid simultaneous to being a... uh, you know, interested in mountaineering. Right. Yeah. So to go back to your, your climb then, what was your impression of this long, cold walk? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. For whatever reason, I loved it. Right. Yeah. It's just, I really love being out in the elements. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I'm not like particularly athletically gifted and, um, you know, don't really excel at like rock climbing or being a great endurance athlete per se, but I've always been done well with perseverance and, you know, just being comfortable in uncomfortable places. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what mountaineering is all about. So, right. you know, right. So you kind of had a little bit, I mean, you said you were a first generation gym kid, but pretty quickly you had kind of this simultaneous, as you said, introduction to climbing in the cold. Yep. Um, and that, you, I mean, that has a tendency to come later and I don't, think it often appeals to to uh kids necessarily yeah. like that yeah. sounds like so, i mean cause yeah. I, even i was you know opposed to hiking a long way 
even though I liked the outdoors in a sense, but you know, I could be, yeah. it was hard to get me to go anywhere where I had to like do something like that. So, yeah. um, and it, it just, just was in your personality that you just yeah. found this thing of like marching away up a hill was, was your jam. Yeah. And you know, my parents tell this story of even, I think like a year or two before we climbed Washington, um, I got a zero degree bag from LL Beans. And we were on another ski weekend at Sunday River, and I went out behind the condo we had rented and into this snowbank and just dug this little snow cave and, like, spent the night out there. And it was actually, like, my grandparents were there, and they insisted that I dig it where they could see it it from their window. And I just, like, spent the night out, like, winter camped by myself, like, you know, 100 feet from (laughs) from the condo. Because I got one for, uh, I got a really warm bag for Christmas, and I did the same thing. I slept in the front yard that night on Christmas night. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, just, like, my parents were like, okay. Only I just slept in the shrubs. Cause um, I didn't. There was not enough snow to dig a snow cave. So I just, <laughs> That's colder. I just slept in the suburban, like a homeless guy on on the front of somebody's lawn that, that they would have called the cops on in the morning. That was me, <laughs> like sitting out there in, in our yard. So yeah, yeah it works <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I wasn't completely averse to to uh, to sort of suffering back then either. Um, although it was like a Midwest version of of all that, where you'd go out in the woods and and just. Uh, I don't know, sit in the woods, not really climbing anything. Where'd you grow up? In, uh, well, this was in the suburbs of Chicago, a place called Libertyville, Illinois. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I was definitely the only person sleeping in their yard in Libertyville, Illinois that night. <laughs> <laughs> Unless somebody was drunk and fell down. So, I mean, how old are you when you climbed the, the, the uh, Mount Washington about? I was, it was seventh grade, so okay. I was probably 12, 13. Well, yeah, right, right. So, so now, I mean, did you flip a switch? Um, what was your sort of next trajectory like in terms of wanting to climb um, and how you ended up doing it? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely knew like climbing, you know, was, was kind of my thing, but I didn't do it, you know, a ton right. in well, in middle school and high school, yeah. you know, unlike, you know, friends who I came to know later who like grew up in mountain towns where you know you have some exposure to the sport and there's older people and dads who can take you out i didn't really have that so i would do it you know once a spring once a fall Mm -hmm. um but i did you know i learned to lead a little bit at the gunks uh, while i was in high school and I uh, kept doing like one winter trip to the presidentials, um, a winter. And um, it was when I, I went to college that I had the chance to like really, you know, <laughs> climb full time. Where'd you go? Dartmouth College, okay. which is what brought me to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And it, Dartmouth has a great history in outdoor sports. You know, uh, the you know the ski teams you know have produced tons of Olympians and uh, tons of climbers, um, and from you know Dick Durrance to you know in the 1930s to um, guys you know Andy Tuthill and Lizzie Asher, a really strong boulder, went to Dartmouth and graduated a few years ago. So it was like a perfect match for me. What was your cohort? So my main guy was Bart Paul. He deserves a big shout out because um, he was the guy who took you know this 
spark I had for climbing and kind of threw napalm on it. <laughs> he um, had grown up in Seattle where he did have exposure to like a climbing community. And he did a lot of his climbs with Miles Smart, who's now an AMGA guide over in Europe. And they were like these precocious high schoolers who, you know, had climbed El Cap and went up to Canada and like ticked roots on the trophy wall um, on Mount Rundle. And so he came into Dartmouth like looking for a partner. I was really keen to climb and in pretty good general shape, but just had never thrown myself at like legitimate hard technical roots. And you know, either at the crags or the mountains. And Bart um Bart just came in and said, All right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And so and we pretty much teamed up our first week on campus and uh started climbing a lot on Cannon Cliff uh, in Franconia Notch. And from there, you know, sophomore year we ended up going to Alaska and climbing the Cassine Ridge on Denali. Junior year, we went to Nepal and did a couple 6,000-meter alpine-style ascents. And, I mean, I doubt... I, I Climbing would have always been part of my life, but would I have become a guide and, like, climbed at a high level the way I, I have if it wasn't for BART? Maybe not. Right, right. Yeah, I mean... You know? You know, I, I often talk about the, the What the Fuck podcast on this because I, you know, stole his format lock you know, lock, stock, and barrel, but yeah. he always talks in there about with music yeah. that you need, like, you're, you're, you know, or you used to anyway, need like a gateway guy, like a dude that's, you know, like you're, you're farting around with like top 40 and whatever it is you hear. And then some, some older brother or a older brother of a friend yeah. says, no, dude, yeah, you know, you shouldn't be listening to that crap. Here's like, here's what you should be listening to. Here's Led Zeppelin. Here's yeah. like all this cool stuff. And I feel like sometimes with climbing it, you know, again, you, you listen to music, you were a climber, yeah, but you know, dabbling kind of not. And then it feels like somebody usually comes along, not always, but it's helpful when someone comes along and just like slaps you and says, let's like, let's take this seriously. Let's get after it. And was that pure chance right. or like, were you predisposed to like eventually, you know, go in a direction or right, whatever, right. you know? Yeah. It's hard I'm to say. I'm always curious about yeah, that. Yeah. It's hard to say, but I mean, your assessment is that maybe, maybe not, maybe you had other interests. Did you have other interests? Like what were you into? Yeah. I mean, I majored in history okay. and, um, got a m- minor in, um, international relations and you know i mean dartmouth's like a serious place and all the kids i was (laughs) going to school with were like they knew how to have fun and they were you know outdoor athletes but they also were you know gonna go on to be doctors and lawyers and get real jobs and you know live in the city and Mm -hmm. at the time i was um you know i i just knew I wasn't going to do that. Right. And it seen being all around it, like def- just reinforced, <laughs> you know, my inclination. <laughs> right. To, like, I don't know about this. Yeah. This to, too serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, in retrospect now I'm 38 and I think, you know, some of the most important stuff is what you can achieve beyond climbing. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, you know, I've kind of come full circle a little bit. Right. So, and you, uh, did you graduated your undergrad there? Yep. You got, so you made, made it through. You weren't the climber that was like, 
So out of it, you're like, I'm gone. It took me four and a half years to graduate. That's not bad. Which was pretty good. Yeah. There was a lot of, you know, nice opportunities in that you know that era because the euro had just been introduced Mm -hmm. so you could go to chamonix and buy like a season pass for 600 euros Mm -hmm. which was at that time 520 bucks and it was actually cheaper to be a ski bum in chamonix than in a typical you know jackson hole or a a rockies uh, mountain town Mm -hmm. and so bart and i and miles and others uh, spent a winter over there and uh that was the reason i graduated late (laughs) right that's a totally awesome reason to graduate yeah yeah they were like come on man (laughs) again if you don't uh you know if you come back and finish it up then yeah you know nothing's lost there because i I have a, uh, you know, when I was in college, all my friends, once I started climbing with these guys and they, they were like, all right, we're going to Yosemite next. We're going to take the next semester off and go to Yosemite. Yeah. And, uh, I was like that. And they're like, you should come. I'm like, that sounds awesome. And called my dad up. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm thinking about doing, blah, blah, blah. And and, well, he was, he plays the game where he's just like, oh, that sounds great. That sounds like a super good idea. And we have this whole conversation. Yep. And then he says, you know, but then you're going to have to figure out how you're going to pay for college when you get back. Because he was like... Oh, really? Yeah, he was like four, I, you know, four yeah. years. You get four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get it done, you're great. You don't, yeah. you're on your own. Yeah. And, uh, and that was like... He was just like, wah, wah, wah. Like you, <laughs> you can stick around. Rough. You can go, but you can, you know, you're yeah. going to get cut off. And, he, and uh, you know, he said it all cheerful. Um, yeah. Because he was probably stoked. He's yeah. Like, Let's get this kid out of college. Like, it's killing me. Parent psychology. Yeah, so I didn't go. I ended up, but I did, I, I rolled a, um, I rolled a, a, a paradise and went over to, uh, New Zealand where I could do a semester mm. and uh, so I could keep on the track. Yeah. So he was okay with that. Yeah. And so we, I got enough credits while I was there to like keep on my four year track and then nice. climb Mount Cook and all those sorts of things. And that's when I used to dream of being a mountaineer as well. Okay. And uh, had a great season there and climbed a bunch and, um, and uh, you know, still pursued that for a few more years but for some reason i just oh, i know why i moved right. to, i moved to southern california um and uh i started rock climbing just way more and kind of yeah. really went back but yeah i mean it's hard to argue with 300 days of sunshine yeah yeah it's tough year. Yeah, so um but anyway but it's just kind of funny because i'm just finding all these parallels our uh, like, yeah. yard sleeping our, our yeah our vanilla uh, suburban upbringing. Um, but then, yeah, this split happens with you where you're, you're becoming this, uh, you know, somewhat serious alpinist. And are you, you know, you're over there in Chamonix. Are you over there climbing, um, you know, some of the classics over there when you were in, in, in that scene? Yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing super test piece, but like we got, uh, beyond good and evil, Mm -hmm. um, classic Mark Twight route year it was pretty fat and you know all the great uh gully mixed routes mm-hmm. on the uh, agui midi and the mont blanc to cool and uh a lot of the classic ski lines mm-hmm. um and as well so that was definitely a formative time because i wasn't super comfortable with glaciers and in a big mountain environment and the great thing about Europe and the Alps is they have this incredible telefreak network and train network where you can access real mountain, uh, you know, terrain and then be back in town in the evening. Mm-hmm. And there's 
really no place you can do that in the lower 48. Right. Uh, Canadian Rockies, yeah, and and maybe pockets here and there. But um, for me, it was like a huge a huge training session and, and a huge booster for other adventures. What'd you think of sort of the mountain culture there compared to here? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's different, right? It's a different flavor of mountain culture, but it's, you know, the Alps is the birthplace of it all. Mm-hmm. And it's still so, you know, must do really, if you're an alpinist to go climbing in the Alps mm-hmm. and, um, what else? I mean, it also taught me a lot about risk because in the Alps, because you can, there's such easy transportation, it's easy to make a bad decision and like go up on the Telefreak on a day when you're just psyched to get some, you know, powder shots in and then the weather comes in or it's bad avalanche uh, uh, conditions and you're suddenly in like a very serious uh, situation mm-hmm. that in most other mountain ranges, it takes days and weeks to, you know, get yourself in a similar situation. Okay. In Chamonix, yeah, you can just have one too many espressos and, and, get, too like, stoked. and get too stoked. And then you're like, oh man, <laughs> game on. Right, right. And did you guys have any close calls for like uh, anything super serious or just this uh, like impending doom sometimes that... Yeah, we had our fair share of, mm-hmm. of close calls. I mean, I remember one time Bart missing a turn uh skiing down after doing um the the um a couloir on the other side of the Aguidumidi and ended up descending this heinous ice fall and he had to like take, we just lost him and we're back at the condo like what happened to him oh and really he had the little apartment in sham suit and he had like down climbed this heinous drainage below the main ice fall to get back to town and so that was that was a close call for Bart. What did you think happened to him? <laughs> we thought he was e- either with a gr- another group behind us, or he was actually in front of us and had gone off to do errands. Oh. So you know, it's yeah. it's those are the dangers of you know when you're young and you're in the mountains. You know, you kind of have a posse mentality, right? Um, anyway, but we survived. Yeah, yeah, you totally survived. <laughs> <laughs> You're here to talk about all you guys did. Yeah. 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 So, and uh, was that just the one year? So I did two trips to Chamonix. One, our Dartmouth was on the quarter system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was actually really handy because I took classes my freshman summer mm-hmm. and basically cranked out six straight quarters of college and then had the spring, my sophomore spring off and went to Chamonix and then we went to, we had gotten a grant from the Mountaineers, I believe, to go up to Denali and uh, try the Cassine Ridge. Okay. And we did that. And um, yeah, it was, those are great days. So you, um, I always ask this question, but I'm asking anyway. So coming from this suburban style, I was just telling you about my dad, Yeah. you know, his like way of sort of keeping me on track. Uh, what was that in terms of, of your expectations or your parents' expectations? Meeting them, were they cool with it? Or They definitely had their issues with climbing at first. I was really lucky in that my family could pay for my college education. Mm-hmm. So that was like yeah, a that was mine too, right? huge yeah. advantage. Yeah. And uh, But in terms of the climbing, I was working jobs, saving up my own money for the trips, 
my parents were kind of just doubting the whole point of the endeavor. And I remember I asked for a pair of ice tools for Christmas, like freshman year. And they were like, okay, this is getting serious with the climbing stuff. <laughs> like, what's the deal? And that's so awesome. I, I, I got a, uh, I got like a X15 for Christmas one year too. Yeah. Just, just one. Just one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they didn't really get it. That's like, they didn't sounds get like your dad. Yeah. Well, they also, <laughs> I bet it was on purpose. No, well, maybe you're right. I never thought of that, but yeah. What can he do with one? It's like, no, no, I'll do it with one if I have to. <laughs> and one crampon. A, yeah. One crampon and one foot. And, uh, no, I think they, they were astounded at how expensive they were, which is a joke because compared to now they weren't expensive at yeah. all. Yeah. So I think they were just like, well, we'll get him one and then yeah. he can like deal with it and get yeah. the other one so anyway, yeah sorry to interrupt <laughs> but um anyway by like sophomore year we were like writing like grant applications yeah. for like the AAC fellowship right. grant and Dartmouth had a grant and I remember telling my dad like you know I just come back from Alaska and I was like oh yeah and it looks like we're, we're gonna try to go to Nepal in the fall uh-huh. and he was kind of like time out and oh, yeah. yeah and uh we ha- but I had this like binder of like our grant proposal and you know Bart had done most of it right. in honesty but uh, I was like no no this isn't like just a seat of your pants operation like we're fundraising and like here's our here's our pitch and he looked at it and was like oh well you know at least he's like writing and like hustling to get money mm-hmm. and that's always been one of my favorite parts of the expedition game is the research and the storytelling component, the fundraising component, the, you know, um, all the stuff that goes into making the trip happen before you leave. It's, it's a lot of hard work, but it's also kind of nerdy and, uh, it feeds that side of my, um, of, of my personality. So, um, you know, dad eventually got cool with it. And I graduated and I moved over from Hanover uh, to the North Conway area in Mount Washington Valley and kind of made this my, my home base. There's a certain amount, I guess, in your personality of audaciousness, it sounds like. And what I mean is that, well, for instance, my thing where I was like, go to Yosemite. Yeah. And... You know, he put this financial thing in front of me that I made a calculation. I was like, I don't yeah. know if that's, I'm not, I'm not down with that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and doing this project all the time, I hear from people that, you know, would have gone and maybe you're not that person either, but, yeah. but you know, they would have been like, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it and I'll work it out later. And, and sometimes I like see those points in my life where I'm just like, and, and because of my dad, he like kind of screwed me up in that way, or maybe didn't, however you want to look at it. You know, I am, I have this like responsibility thing that keeps coming back. Sure. You're just a well-grounded Midwesterner. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but you know, it's like, then I sort of fantasize, well, what would have happened? You know, who knows if I'd have, you know, that would have been my path to like climbing greatness or whatever, instead of muddling around where I have. Well, been. well, don't overestimate climbing greatness. <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah. Please. Yeah, I know. But, um. But back to you, yeah. you know, the other thing is like, I would have, I kind of have always like looked at these grants and all this stuff. And at that age, I would have thought, oh no, those are for like, you know, people doing serious this and that. And they're not for like a climber like me, who's just, you know, doing his like climbing on his own. And you guys were like, no, screw it. They'll give us money. We'll do these grants. And it seems yeah. kind of like, 
I don't know, a, a level of confidence, a little level of audaciousness, and maybe because you guys drove each other with it. Um, but would you say that's anywhere in your personality just to be like, you know, I'm going to take whatever avenue I need to do to get to this point? Yeah, I think that I... I definitely know I have a tendency to, uh, you know, throw myself in on the deep end mm-hmm. uh, in terms of projects and and undertakings. I'm not sure why that is. I I just uh, I've always I've always enjoyed having a lot of irons in the fire, <laughs> and uh, sort of that way. Especially, it just suits the, you know sort of the modern like freelancing career lifestyle anyway you you want to have a diverse skill set and i knew i loved the mountains and climbing and i wanted to you know find a way to you know do it professionally or Mm full-time and yet i didn't have one obvious uh way forward where like I was getting, you know, offered huge sponsorships or uh, like I, I didn't really see going the full international guide route as being that appealing. And so I've always just kind of been the kind of person who does a little bit of everything. Okay. Like I've guided part-time in the winters, uh, freelance writing, um, working with sponsors, but not, um, you know, exclusively, and um, just kind of patching it together. So what was kind of your first step to that, do you think, when you, I mean, the grant writing was getting your trips paid for, but yeah. and then you had to finish school. Um, and, you know, what do you think was your first step towards, like, I'm going to make this? Well, first step was being like a dirtbag seasonal guide. Okay. And I loved that lifestyle. I was really lucky to meet a, a great group of friends, um, uh, who inclu- including my future wife, Janet, uh, who had all gone to different schools around the New England area, but we were all really fired up about climbing. And we all kind of coalesced and moved to the Mount Washington Valley around the same time, 2003, 2004. And that was like uh, the aforementioned uh, Dana, uh, Mad Dog Drummond, uh, Bayard Russell, who later became my partner in Cathedral Mountain Guides. Um, Emily Lee, who's a great uh, climber artist, free spirit dirtbag, who's done a lot of great climbing art. Uh, Sarah Garlick, who uh, is has written a book about uh, geology for climbers and is just a really smart scientific uh person and great climber and uh tim kemple there was like this great crew of of people and we moved here and just got jobs guiding waiting tables um and uh working carpentry and tried to climb as much as possible here in north conway here in north conway okay you know i i thought you were actually from new hampshire but as far as us in the west are concerned yeah this is just one big state up here that a little bit. I know there's some borders yeah. and there's some yeah. differences. Yeah, and different cultures. For as far sure. as we're concerned, like yeah. you know, yeah, it's all it's all one big thing. So you you did travel all over the world. You yeah. traveled all over the West. Um, you know, I, we met and you met, quote unquote, in Yosemite. Yeah. What? Why? I know. Why stay here? Why was that's the, a good question? Yeah. I mean, I've driven up here to to talk to you. Yeah. Like, well, you got to go check out Cathedral Edge. Yeah. I'm going to try to at least have a look at it. Yeah, at yeah. least take a, take a look at it. It's um, covered in, in 
Yeah. Snow and ice. Moment, <laughs> yeah, it's so. going to look nasty. Yeah. But uh, no, the White Mountains just have a great sort of subculture uh, of, you know, the outdoor uh, community. Uh, it, everything's a little hardy around here because the weather is bad. We have sort of a, a long, you know, variable winter. Uh, we have a great summer, but it can get, you know, wet and like monsoon like really any time of the year because we're so close to the Atlantic Ocean. And I think that like ref- is reflected in the community of outdoors people here. Folks embrace bad weather. It's mm-hmm. not like namby pamby, oh, it might thunderstorm this afternoon. Which Gore Tex should I bring? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, it's going to be <laughs> crappy. <Right. laughs> you know, the rock's going to be wet. Right. Like, you know, you go out, to, even in sport climbing, you go out to Rumney and it's like, you know, people are rock climbing in some pretty gnarly conditions. Sure. No, yeah, I'm, I'm sure nothing that, <laughs> yeah. you know, us... Uh, us Westerners out in rifle or whatever would ever touch. We would just be like, no, today's out. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're... <laughs> today's <laughs> out. Like, forget it. <laughs> Um, so that's always just like inspired me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think it, especially if you aspire to the big mountains, right. it, uh, gives you like a great background because mm-hmm. you're trained up in shitty weather and mm-hmm. shitty conditions. Mm-hmm. And so when you run into the wet rock pitch, you know, in Patagonia or the Himalaya, like you've climbed a lot of wet rock. <laughs> sure. I, I was just down at the AAC yeah. dinner and, and the K2 the 78 K2 expedition guys were there. And those, yeah. you know, primary, uh, primarily it sounded like those are all, you know, North uh, Pacific Northwest yep. based guys, yep. Seattle. So, and that, I, I feel like there's, they have a similar thing. Yeah. They have a similar yeah. thing and, but they have some altitude, not super high, yeah. um, but they're striking distance into the Canadian Rockies as well. Yeah. And that seems like uh, the only element here that's missing, but then everybody talks about how the heinous these mountains are. Yeah. For their height. Yeah. As it were. And they and they can be killers, you know, and they can I mean literally, you know, I just actually talked to Hugh Her. Yeah. Um, you know, and so his 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 near death experience and and one of his rescuers was killed rescuing him on, on Mount Washington. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's just kind of like looking at it, it's it is this like little stew of kind of most of the right elements to create, you know, burly mountaineers and burly alpinists. And if you're from the East Coast and the Northeast and you're a young climber like me and you're feeling really drawn to the sport, there's a good chance you're going to end up in North Conway because this is sort of the best climbing uh, there is and best concentration of it. And that's why, you know, Dean Potter spent two or three years living here working for wild things and just being a climbing bum before he moved out west and uh so many other you know great climbers have you know josh wharton's another guy who was just out here for the ice fest and he cut his teeth in new hampshire before he set sail for colorado right so it's a great it's a great spot to be there's good energy and uh i love it so back to your evolution i'm just gathering like you're in your 20s you're climbing bum you're dabbling in all this sort of stuff and then what about the creative projects because again when i sort of re-encountered your name after you know 
Oh, that, that's that a, loud that guy at the kid. fire. Yeah, that loud guy at the fire just wrote a book <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. So at some point or another, you know, as one of these irons in the fire that you mentioned, you know, you've become an author, you're working in video and, 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 and all sorts of other creative projects. So can you maybe give an idea of the evolution of that? And if it started early, it started late, or where, where it occurred? Well, it, it probably started with the grant applications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then every, you know, grant, you need a trip report. And, um, you know, I started working up as a guide in, in Alaska, um, on Denali and all the mountains around there for uh, Alaska Mountaineering School. And that gave me the opportunity to try bigger routes up there and find some unclimbed stuff and, you know, second ascents and, and sort of stretch myself a little bit more as an alpinist. And those climbs started getting noticed. And so I uh, started, you know, having more opportunities to write about my adventures mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, and I really liked writing, but it's hard for me to tell a lot of stories about myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'd much rather, you know, be as a journalist or a storyteller focused on somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book I wrote uh, about K2 was sort of a big pivot in that direction. What was that called? That was called uh, One Mountain, Thousand Summits. Mm-hmm. And it was about a tragic day in 2008 when 11 climbers were killed uh, going for the summit of K2 and, and returning from the summit. I wasn't there. I was actually in Colorado uh, on a mountain hardware gig, but it was immediately international news, you know, CNN homepage. Mm-hmm. And as a mountaineer, anytime you see mountaineering, like, it on the homepage of mainstream media, mm-hmm. you kind of go, oh man, this isn't good. Like, right, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. No, it usually is. It's it, usually not bad. Lately, there's been a couple, you know, like Honnold's made it so it was a, yeah. a good story, but yeah. Yeah, the Don Wall was a yeah, great story right, yeah, for the but, sport. But for the most part, it's not good no, news. No, and it's, it's not. often it's not told that well either. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of starting to find my voice as a writer and uh, decided to just write a few blogs about it for Mm -hmm. the Huffington Post. And, you know, they were analysis of what might have happened on K2, but they were also sort of like, there was a little bit of media criticism mixed in there, like comparing, you know, different accounts and, you know, maybe improper terminology that right. kind of muddies, muddies the water, stuff like that, stuff that climbers immediately notice. Right. And, and it's uh, like, it almost uh, feels insurmountable. You just like, you can tell these outlets over and over again and stuff, and they just like, it seems like it bounces off their heads a little bit. But, but anyway, yeah. But yeah, so. Anyway, yeah. Uh, but death cells. And, yeah. and so they, you know, they know that, you know, a mountaineering story, you know, involving fatality or, you know, or sexy rescue is going to get a lot of clicks and likes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that sparked my interest in the story. I ended up, writing a feature about it for rock and ice. And when I approached that, there were all these different accounts from the Western survivors that I had read, you know, reported in, in, uh, 
different media outlets. And on the edge of those stories, there was always reference to these per- porters or mm-hmm. Sherpas. Right. And it was totally vague. Like I stumbled down and then a Sherpa appeared and gave me a bottle of oxygen right. and helped me find the way back to camp. Right. And because of my background as a guide, I know that like people can, sh- you know, be on the mountain at the same time and have very different experiences. Mm-hmm. We can be up on Mount Washington in a whiteout and it feels like this epic, you know, wilderness, but a guide knows exactly where the next cairn is and right. the cairn after that and every twist and turn in the trail. And so I just kind of said to myself, man, who are these Sherpas? Mm-hmm. Who are these like porters who those are the guys I want to talk to and hear their recollection of what mm-hmm. happened. And, uh, that was sort of the, the genesis of the book. So you're, you're a pretty good writer. You've written all these reports. You're doing blogs. Um, it, how was it to switch into like, and did you have the, did you have the tools to switch into this, a journalist mode? Um, or were you kind of learning on the, on the fly as far as what that would take to, I was definitely learning on the yeah. fly. I mean, it's a it's a hard job. Mm-hmm. And um, so all the criticism about the mainstream media, mm-hmm. like journalists are not people who need to be criticized a right. lot in this day and age. Right. So I have a lot of respect for people who, who have chosen that as a full-time profession. I should say that. Um, and it was, it was a great adventure for me. It felt every bit as exciting as going after a first ascent just flying to Kathmandu with like a list of guys I want to try to find. And it involves making friends, uh, meeting people for coffee, getting introductions. Uh, you know, it, it's involves a lot of, uh, less than ideal communication because of the language background. I don't speak Nepali or Sherpa. Um, but it was just totally engrossing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it really fueled me for, you know, two years from when the accident actually happened and when my book was published. What year was that, that it happened, which... 2008. Right. And then my uh, book was published in 2008. Because the pre... I mean, that was the... That was huge, but it's always compared with the previous... The other, I mean, there's been tons of, of tragedy on that mountain, but uh, oh, where yeah. Rob Slater died and where... Yeah, um, yeah. 96 yeah. with yeah. Allison Hargraves. Right, right, and Allison Hargraves, yeah. right. Um, so the I was kind of curious, you know, I, I have this thing about like um, Everest and and it's kind of, it seems like the whole Everest thing's calmed down a little bit. You know, we've had the, the Sherpa fight and the, you know, and the earthquake and what happened with you know, half and just, just all the ups and downs. It's, epic. With the, with, it's been biblical. With commercial, yeah. With biblical. commercial guiding up there. And, and a lot of people have said to me, Hey man, like you should have somebody on, you know, that, you know, and talk to them about that. And, and it's been difficult because it's what I call like the cult of Everest. Like everybody involved has a, has a vested interest in, in making it seem like, it's it's a it's maybe like everyone's like you need to get somebody to talk like about how it really is and it's like well guides don't want to do that because they're selling this product people who pay seventy five thousand dollars or whatever to go do it don't want to do it because it diminishes you know they want it remembered as this amazing accomplishment that was like sure and it is but it's really you know it's like get the dirt or talk to somebody and and it's hard, you know, it's hard to yeah. get someone to come down and just be like, this is what it's really like. Was there any reluctance when you, when you were talking to these Sherpas to, 
in terms of them protecting their um, their professional as or aspirations in the mountains, you know, like to to be, you know, just yeah, not not maybe be as forthright as as, as they were. Or did you oh, find yeah. them to be? Of to course, be, yeah. the, the Sherpas. I mean. They have a lot of agency in everything that's gone on, um, you know, on the highest mountains, both in the story I worked on on K2 and everything that's happened on Everest. You know, there are good Sherpas and bad Sherpas and, uh, you know, they have their own interests, business interests, personal interests, egos, images to uphold, um, just like Westerners do. Right. And so that was a big part of my book was, you know, breaking down this sort of oriental, you know, heroic imagery around the Sherpa. Right. Um, and, you know, we should say, if we're going to go into this, <laughs> Sherpa is, there's two definitions of Sherpa. Right. Uh, Sherpas are an ethnicity uh, of, of folks from Tibet who migrated to the Khumbu Valley in the 16th century, but there were waves of migration. And um, eventually some Sherpas found their way to Darjeeling in the 1920s and got hired on to some of the original Mount Everest expeditions. And on the original expeditions, it wasn't just ethnic Sherpas. There were other tribal people who were part of the uh, expedition, but the Sherpas actually were good business people and recognized that this could be a good gig. And they protested and staged walkouts uh, very early in the 1920s and the 30s to kind of consolidate this job of being a mountain guide in, and porter in the high mountains of the Himalaya. And, um, you know, when Tensing Norgay and uh, Hillary climbed Everest in 53, Hillary took a photo of Tensing on top, but and there's controversy about why there never was a photo taken of Hillary on top. Mm -hmm. So when that was like front page news around the world and it said a Sherpa has is standing on top of Mount Everest was the photo. Right. And that just sealed the deal for the Sherpas and, and, uh, you know, gave them this tremendous, uh, business professional identity right. that uh, has done great things for their culture, but it's brought a lot of change and heartache and tragedy. And so the other definition is, is, is would be a, the, the a job. Yeah. The job. Right. Exactly. Right. And I know, and, and it's interesting. I'm glad that you, you clarified that because some people who are very sensitive to that, you know, I think, are always correct like they're not all sherpa sherpa are specific but the word has come to mean you know these local you know yep. high altitude climbing and guides and porters that yep. are on the mountain whether yep. when you get down to it they're they're one yep. ethnicity versus another because over in k2 you know um, yeah you've got the what is it the um Porters are generally... Uh, they don't have as good branding. Right, yeah. They're called high-altitude porters, or right. HAPs. Right. And, um, <laughs> Their branding's terrible. Yeah, uh, but I think it's like anytime you're talking about these sort of sensitive issues, it's, it's important to talk about the words you're using and mm -hmm. why, Absolutely. because it, it just helps you explore why that subject is sensitive, maybe, mm -hmm. and... Uh, so, you know, right. Well, and it's fraught. I mean, it's yeah. the history of mountaineering over there oh, yeah. is fraught with, with the same sort of imperial, uh, you know, separation of, of who's in charge and who's not in charge and who's better and who's 
that all, you know, that whole century has brought with it. And it continues to be, you know, it continues, like you said, those, these, you yep. kept reading about these people on the fringes of, yep. you know, and they didn't have, they don't even have names. Their Sherpa, their A Sherpa showed up there. You know what I mean? Like A Sherpa basically saved my ass. You yeah. know, you'd think you'd like know what is, you know, who he was or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's fraught. So it's not like something that's some sort of like oversensitive thing to deal with because the whole system is fraught with, with sort of a, a social stratification over there. So, yeah. 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 And, and I mean, it's South Asia is a place that fascinates me. And, um, I, you know, that was kind of what I studied in college, what I focused on and, um, I've been lucky to, you know, spend a lot of time in Nepal, India, and Pakistan. And it's, you know, the, the stories of the people there are just tremendous. And, uh, you know, I think, I think everybody should go there and go to Nepal, go, go to the Himalayas and, you know, spend some money, hire local guides and, uh, check it out for yourself. A lot of authors or especially first time yeah. authors, like they, they let something go that they're uneasy with. Yeah. Um, maybe, I mean, I think everybody probably sure. does. I do it with just even, you know, 3000 word articles. Like finally, I'm just like, all right, this thing's terrible, but I got to let it go or whatever. Yep. What were your feelings as you, as you got to the end of it and pretty similar and found it in, in print, <laughs> like sitting it in your hand, pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned a lot about the creative process, uh, too, and I definitely, wish I had had more time to, uh, to craft it because it was so intense. Uh, and, uh, it was just an intense story and that like people had died. It was intense for me because I was a first time author and it was intense because the publisher wanted to get out, get it out there in a relatively speedy schedule yeah timely to the event timely to the right, event right um you know we knew that there were other books that were coming out so okay. they kind of said hey summer 2010 is really when you know that we should launch this um so you know all that said the great thing about <laughs> about writing a book is it's something you can give to your mother. Yeah, and, totally. Now I was thinking it has got to have been like... Yeah, that's a really nice thing boy. to be like, look, mom, yeah. I accomplished something. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, I don't know. Right, I mean, right. you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's tough, to, tough to know. But I, I do think that at the time, there hadn't been a lot of focus on the Sherpas there, there had been some for sure, but like the amount of books that were out there about the Himalayan mountaineering experience from the Sherpa perspective, there was like three or four, but not tons. And since then, you know, with everything that's happened on Everest, um, I think that it's nice to see people engaging with, you know, the issue uh, of having, paid professional help on the world's highest mountains, um, you know, in a more, in, in a more focused way. Well, yeah. And a dialogue, I, you, you know? know, I read the book and, yeah. uh, there, the, the, along those lines, it's, it is important to remember that they're not this like 
um, we have the tendency to talk about them as this like completely homogenous group of people that act as in yeah. concert, if you will. And, no. and and that's just, I mean, that's like schema. That's like yeah. how you interpret the world. And that's what got us into the Vietnam war. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's hard to, you know, just have the brain power to be into individualizing the world. So it is a tendency to do that, whether it's Russians or Americans or, I mean, we do it in all these different ways, but, um, you know, that I think was the, an important step in there is that you're like, Oh, these people are all different. And like you said, and then when there was this, uh, incident with, with, uh, was it Simone, Moro or well, how do you Simone pronounce? and yeah, Uli yeah. and, yeah, and you know, John yeah Griffin again it felt like yeah the, they were all acting in concert but then you're like no no these you know, yeah there's there's sure. butthead Sherpas and there's like cool Sherpas and there's hot headed yeah, Sherpas yeah, yeah, who yeah. are quick to fight right, and yeah. there's really like the mellow the Sherpas, Sherpas who are, are like, come on you guys get along right <laughs> yeah so yeah and and you know I think that's become like you just said, more pronounced now to think about it all that way. Yeah. Um, although I think there's still a long ways to go, you know, in terms of Western attitudes towards what goes on over there. There is. And yeah. and every year, I think, you know, the original Sherpa families from the Kumbu, mm-hmm. a lot of them have become um, economically very successful. Right. You know, they like... You know, these are guys who, you know, were working in expeditions in the 70s, 80s, 90s, invested that income in businesses. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, their family lives in Kathmandu and their kids are, you know, in college overseas and they have, you know, built, uh, you know, successful trekking companies, tea lodges, all sorts of different business ventures. So what's happening on Everest, I think, is that other ethnicities and tribes, you know, that aren't from the Kumbu are getting sort of pulled into doing sort of the, the low level sort of grunt work of, you know, moving stuff up a mountain is, is hard work. And, you know, it happens one kilo at a time, one step at a time. And, and it's freaking dangerous. Right. So, um, I think it's, it's an important issue to keep talking about. Uh, what, what's, germinated from that in terms of creativity um you know was that yeah. like did it burn you out for a while or, or oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like i want to just move back to the sar site and hang out by myself again no but um you know again this guy who's got i think people think of like being a professional climber or whatever that means in other words you know you don't have a day job you're not in a cubicle you're out mm-hmm. there climbing in some capacity or in the outdoors they, I think people think of it as one path. Oh, he's going to be a pro climber or he's going to be a guide or he's going to be, and you're explaining this whole like, boom, boom, I've got this project, these things happening. Yeah. You know, so the creative part of it is still part of all the things that you do now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Very much so. You know, back in the day, it was really easy because I'd guide summers and winters and Alaska in the spring. And then the rest of the time was like climbing, uh, climbing trips. And it was pretty easy to like go to Patagonia for a month or six weeks, November, December, early January, work the winter back here in New Hampshire, and then then go to Alaska for the spring. Um, I started getting enough opportunities that instead of like working in Alaska, I'd like have a freelancing gig or be going on a mountain hardware expedition. So after the after 2010, after the book was published. I I was really lucky to start teaming up with a new crew of uh, Alpine partners 
who were more people I had met professionally. And, you know, I consider it like I'm an average climber, but I'm really lucky to have climbed with Uli Steck, Alex Honnold, Mike Lebecki, Ethan Pringle, um, and, and just had chances to, you know, witness like the guys who are true athletic studs doing their thing. And, uh, that's what I, you know, and then I was working on stories to, to pay for those trips. Right. I wanted to c- cut back a little bit and talk. You had mentioned early on, I heard you say like, I thought about being a guide, but that really wasn't me. But then you became one anyway. How was it that you ended up embracing that? Did you find that you were wrong about yourself in terms of your aptitude for it? And well, I, I mean, it I, seems like you would be I an think, excellent, fun guide to have. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I love guiding because yeah. I love teaching and hanging out with uh-huh. people. I didn't embrace it because... I realized that to to do it full time, you would have to do a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can suck your motivation to travel for personal climbing and adventures. You want to be home when you're not working. Yeah. And B, I realized that you are only as good as your day rate and the number of days you want to work a year. And, you know, that's a, that's, it's, it's a, awesome career to be like a, you know, I'm talking about a capital G guide who has the international pin and spends, you know, three weeks in the Alps and, you know, spring in Alaska, Red Rocks, who's hopping around. I have a lot of friends who do that. And, um, I have a lot of respect for that, uh, you know, that career, but it didn't fit me. I'm a little too frenetic. That's a good career if you're a grinder sort of. And, um, I've always been, you know, a little more, um, you know, diverse and, and just sort of job to job and, and story to story. So the balance I struck ultimately was that I, I, I only want to guide here in New Hampshire. Okay. And I have a little mom and pop guide service. I run with Bayard and, um, you know, we have three or four staff guides who work for us on busy weekends, but it's a, it's a part-time business, mostly focused around winter climbing. And it's, it's great because I get to guide 40, 50 days a year. And I also do a lot of ice festival work. So I get to teach people and, and, uh, and I do a lot of beginner instruction and kids instruction. A funny thing about guiding is there's also a tendency to like, you know, as your career progresses, get drawn to, you know, bigger, like high, high baller clients and harder, you know, sexy routes. And my career trajectory has kind of been the opposite. Right. I like uh, work with college kids and veterans groups mm-hmm. and like spend a lot of time taking people out top roping and just teaching them like the ABCs of climbing. Mm-hmm. But for some reason that feels more fulfilling than, uh, you know, being focused on like the, the high end guiding. Yeah. Well, if you're home here in town and yeah. you have, and now you have a baby, yeah, a uh, little toddler running around. I mean, those days you can come home from exactly, you know, you get done at five thirty and you say yeah. good night to everybody and yeah. we'll see you in the morning and, I'll come home. So, I mean, those fit as well as being fun or, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, and I've always, I was a guide for, for several years. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, 
you get into that higher end guiding or what we would call yeah. that. And it's dangerous for you. Yep. It becomes, you know, it's, it's a dangerous profession. Um, and, and it's really hard to like rock climb at a high level. Right. When you're, if you're doing a lot of mountain slogging, whether it's ski guiding, you know, Grand Tetons in the summer, right. a lot of those kind of bread and butter gigs, you know, it's, it's hard to be like, a 513 rock climber and keep your fingers strong sure. and be like doing that kind of mileage. Right. Yeah. So it makes sense. But, um, but the other question I had, you, you just went through all these great climbers that you climb with and, yeah. you know, you're one of these guys that, uh, a little self-deprecating in terms of your own abilities and, you know, you're sort of like, yeah, I'm drafting on these guys or whatever. But, you know, what do you think it is about you that makes, you know, these guys, who you claim, or I mean, some Alex Honnold's better than all of us. Sure. You know, what is it that makes you a good partner? Why do these guys keep, you know, why, why do you have you run through these, these great climbers that you all had this great opportunity to climb with? Cause they obviously wanted to climb with you. So the question I guess is basically, what do you think makes you a good partner uh, in the mountains? Why do you think, uh, what are you proud of in terms of your abilities? I think, I think really it's just, you know, being stoked and enthusiastic mm -hmm. about getting out of the sleeping bag in the morning and trying to do something, even if, you know, the weather's 50-50 and it's, you're probably going to like ski to the base of the route and decide it's not a good day. The one thing I've learned about, you know, big mountain climbs is that you need to just keep chipping away at it and if you're if you're genuinely enjoy the process of you know getting out and when it's cold and you know going for some exercise and carrying your gear in a pack and whatnot then you're just going to make your own luck to a certain extent because it's impossible to predict you know conditions in the mountains and what kind of day it's going to be so it's like one cardinal rule is like you always want to go until sunrise and then right. look around right and then yeah. decide yeah. you know there's this term i learned in california that i've never really heard anyone ever using i think i heard it from bill leventhal yeah is a snail eye ah. and getting snail eye means that you you know your little your little snail's tentacles are like peeking out of your shell and at the first sign of trouble you pull them back in yeah so like totally and, and getting snail eyed means that you did that and then the day turned out to be super nice and you were like oh, i should have gone yeah you know so you're like you're basically try to be uh, immune to snail eye yeah yeah i think that's and, and it comes because i you know cold and just you know being uncomfortable like that's not a big deal for me and uh so I don't, a lot of athletes like fester in base camp mm -hmm. because it's, it's an unpredictable environment. Mm -hmm. They're not sure if they're going to get to climb in six hours or six days. Right. And that just tweaks with people, especially if you're sort of an obsessive compulsive personality. I've always been able to just embrace that uncertainty and just have fun and be thankful for where you are, you know? farting drinking coffee with your buddies in like a rainy base camp somewhere right 
Okay, one last thing. You have a little baby. Yep. Oh, not really. I mean, what do you call them? I guess they're toddlers now. I have one too. Little monkey. Yeah, little monkeys. She's just about a month older than mine. What was it... what was it in the evolution of your climbing and your life and mm. who you are that told you guys it was time to do that? Because, <laughs> I mean, cl- yeah. l- let's face it. Yeah. A lot of climbers are allergic to, you know, giving up the the the, the focus on their lives for something like that. And we yeah. know them. We're friends with them. Yeah. And uh, so, so you, uh, you know, in, in our case, it, it thrust itself upon us. Yeah. Um, and you guys made a choice. So what was it? that made it time to do that? Well, I think, I mean, I've, you know, the thing I've probably been most lucky for is like my relationship with Janet, my wife, and she's a climber too. And we met back in 2003, 2004. We got married on January 1st, 2011. And we've had shared incredible adventures, uh, with each other, uh, going to, you know, places all over the world to climb and travel. And we also shared this adventure here in the Shabin, living living like this for a bunch of years. And so having a, you know, offspring, it's one of those choices when, you know, you're in that kind of committed relationship. It just feels like, you know, part of the deal. You want somebody to take care of you when you get old. <laughs> um, and... And uh, somebody to, you know, keep you laughing and growing and, and all that stuff as you move into new phases in life. So I, uh, the you know, it was something that we, we decided to do. And simultaneously to that, we decided to open a um, climbing gym with some friends and sort of, I thought like, okay, if we're going to have a family there's got to be a climbing gym we can go to because so that's going to be my so you have to build one. deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it turned out that, uh, you know, there wasn't a good one close to us and one thing led to another and we ended up having opening a climbing gym and uh, welcoming a little girl into the world in the same year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. And uh, thanks for sitting down. We, uh, we, you actually have to go to the climbing gym or to take care of the young one pretty quick. So can I, I oh, also uh, um, would like to say thank you to my sponsors who support me. And <laughs> uh, I really couldn't travel and piece it all together without their help. So principally that's Mountain Hardware, also um, Petzl, Cliff Bar, other brands, and... Um, And also, thank you, Janet. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks to Freddie again for having me into his home, his little home. But we are also in his new home up the hill as well, hanging out with this kid, doing a little bouldering on his indoor wall with his daughter, which is super fun. And uh, yeah, I've never had anybody, actually, I've never had anybody shout out their sponsors like that before, ever, I don't think. Maybe you guys remember sometime, but yeah, that's the kind of guy he is, man. It's pro, pro sesh. Thankful for uh, for the support he gets and the work he does with those guys. If you want to help out the Enormal Cast, you can go to enormalcast.com, my janky little eighth grade project website, and click on help out and then uh, do what it asks you. 
Uh, there's a few things you can do, including donate if you want. Also, remember to support our sponsors that uh, help this show exist. It definitely would not exist without your help, but it would also not exist without their help. So it's a big, juicy pie of helping each other. So won't you take a bite? Speaking of helping each other, climbing is in full swing here in North America. Outdoor climbing, the spring is upon us, which unfortunately also means there's always a spring uptick in hearing about accidents. I think it's just a matter of volume. So many more rock climbers than ice climbers and stuff, at least in North America. So please, if you could wipe my social media clean from any reports of accidents, that would, uh, you know, the Norma cast could go into its grave happy and complete. I know it's not going to happen, but please, as individuals, make sure that you guys are checking your systems, communicating, looking out for each other. You know, try not to get so far and over your head that uh, that things go badly. And of course, I always say check your knot at the end of these things. And please know that that's not the end. It's only the start. Checking your knot is one thing I want you to do, but it's also a metaphor for checking everything that goes into the system. And as the Beastie Boys said, you also need to check your head. <laughs> Now, young man, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, actually, Matt, I kind of want to be a writer. Well, la de frickin' da! We got ourselves a writer here! Hey, Dad, I can't see real good. Is that Bill Shakespeare over there? Now, I wonder, Brian, from what I've heard, you're using your paper not for writing but for rolling doobies.